Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the OrcoCast. My name is the Orcosaurus, and in this podcast, I'm talking to indie game developers about their games and the video game industry in general. So, if you like my show, then please consider subscribing on YouTube, thumb the video up, ring the bell, leave a comment, and if you're listening to one of the many podcast platforms, please consider us giving a review. And if you want to support us, please check out our Patreon. Thank you, everyone, and now on to the show. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Orcocast. With me today is Al. Hello, Al. How are you doing? You're okay. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic since you are here today. Okay. So, Al, <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I am the lead developer of Orchid of Redemption, or at Orchid of Redemption, and I have just made the game Dune Shining with my little team of people here in Adelaide, Australia. Wonderful. Okay, so let's go right into our little dialogue about Dune Shining and uh, you. But uh, yep. I want to start with the you. So how did you go, or, or how did you get into game development um so yeah it was a bit of a, a bit of a weird kind of meandering journey um i started my, my first kind of steps into game development were with this program called click and play which was around in the 90s uh so i was kind of in my probably pre-teen at that time like maybe 10 or 12 years old and i dabbled with this with this software and and made some like little kind of platformers and stuff like that um but it didn't last too long and it was like a really long time it wasn't until my mid-30s that i picked up game development again in a serious way so i did a bit of like flash stuff in about 2008 i made this like flash game which kind of randomly generated poetry you know different kinds of poetry depending on which character you talk to and it was kind of like a you know like a magic eight ball where you shake it up you ask it a question you shake it up and it gives you like a random answer it was it was kind of like a game version of that but with each character giving you a different type of answer. So that was really the first full thing that I actually finished. Um, and so then I I was doing music. I did a music degree, music technology, and I was designing my own digital instruments that I was performing with. And I took that, you know, like a quite a long way. And I got to this point where I, I felt like I couldn't take it any further, but, but I, I wanted to take it further. I wanted to figure out how I could do that better. And I just thought of using video games to overcome some of the limitations that I was having with these instruments. So I proposed that as a, a research project, as a PhD project. And I, I did that as a PhD for three years and it went really well. And basically I took that music game technology and started my business with it. And I've been doing full-time game development ever since for the last eight or nine years. That is indeed very impressive. Uh, eight or nine years game development is a, actually quite some time. A lot of people quit before they like reach five years because game yeah. development is very underestimated and very complex and also very hard. It's very, very difficult. And, and the competition is, is just crazy. It, it is. Being and yeah, it, it's very tough. It is a very fierce field. Very fierce. So I guess Tune Shining is not your first game then. Well, it's my first 
commercial game actually. Um, so I've done things like made games for um, exhibitions and performances, but those haven't been released as commercial products to the public. So yeah, Dune Shiny is, is the first one that, that the public can actually buy. That That's interesting. I, I want to know more about these um, performance performances games. Tell me a little bit about those. Well, the one that I just described earlier, the, the kind of Magic 8-Ball poetry one, was uh, for a local exhibition. It was a, it was a moving image exhibition here in Adelaide. Um, so people could like come up and play it and it was projected on a big screen on the wall. Um, but that was, that was it. It was basically there for about a week or so. And, and that, was, that was all that it was made for. Um, and it kind of it was kind of like collaged out of things. So you know, like how people make sample-based music, they kind of like cut a bit of a bit of music off of this and a bit of music off of that and combine it together. It was kind of like the visual equivalent of that, which meant that there were kind of copyright issues with it. So I wouldn't have been able to sell it publicly anyway. Um, but also, it wasn't. It just wasn't intended for that. It was meant for an exhibition. Um, and so a few years later, another one that I did was a commission for a string quartet where um, they kind of just said, you know, we're, we're interested in what you're doing with like game and music technology. Can, can we just make a performance piece together? So I made this kind of game landscape, which again, it was, it was more about the music of it than it, it wasn't like a game in terms of you, you, there were objectives and you could win it or anything, but it was made in Unity. You know, it was, it was using game technology and so I was using a MIDI controller, moving through the landscape and controlling aspects of the music. And then the string quartet, uh, I had given them like written instructions of how to improvise along with what I was doing. And so then we projected that up on a big screen and the audience could see what was happening on the screen and could see the string quartet playing along with it. So it was a um, dynamic soundtrack. Could, could you could you say it that way? Um, yeah, but I was. I mean, what I was doing with the MIDI controller was also part, like controlling the music as well. So, so yeah, it was a dynamic soundtrack is is not a bad way to describe it because there were there were elements of of uh, things that were pre-composed and there were elements of like things that I was doing in real time. Yeah, that that that's. I mean, that's rather impressive. Um, I you probably know Mick Gordon and his Doom soundtrack is also within the game extremely dynamic so um i have nothing but the highest respect for someone who can pull off something like that mm, thanks yeah yeah because yeah, it's, it's interesting um, doing that experiment stuff. Yeah. because i feel like this is um something that is really hard to do and to 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 properly even do that so that is something yeah very impressive and very interesting actually mm. um yeah so let, let's let's talk a little bit about tune shining um yeah. i'm not entirely sure somebody came in my stream dropped a few bits when i played it was that you no it wasn't me no no um no I'm you weren't in my stream because of the time zone difference it was about three o'clock in the morning for me so yeah yeah i thought i thought so um I, i'm just I, I i was just making sure so when i played the game um, I drew two comparisons. I like to draw comparisons even if they always a little bit unfair because obviously the game brings also some their own stuff to the table. The first comparison I drew is Curse to Golf, um, which on the, fir on the surface level makes the most sense. But after I played it a little bit, um, 
I actually went with Trials, if you ever heard of that one. Uh, I have, but I... Where you drive the motocross down... Ah, uh, oh, like the real physics-based... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I could be off, but I saw more Trials influence in there than maybe, um, I don't know then then actually is there um so or or the question that i actually want to ask is what influenced june shining which games did influence it right uh i mean i've never played trials i, I know what it is i remember seeing people at school play it but i've never played it that's a really interesting i'm not even sure how you got that <laughs> I, i'll tell you after you answered my that's question <laughs> i will yeah. tell you yeah so um so for june shining it's uh, there's not like a, a concrete like I can point to this game and this game. There's like a lot of influences mixed in there. Um, a lot of I mean, if you if you've played through enough of the game, you'll see like Nintendo inspired stuff. You know, some some of the pipes even look like very Mario like. Um, so there's a bit of that in there, and, and some of the mechanics definitely um, that didn't make it into the game were, were even more Nintendo ish. Like we had. Uh, we had a more we had a power-up system that we prototyped and we were planning to put later in the game but didn't make it in and that was very much like say in the 2d mario games where you hit a block and a mushroom comes out and the mushroom kind of like moves away from you and you have to chase after it we had stuff like that going on with our power-ups um and we just yeah it didn't make it in so um but uh there's a lot of you know just kind of general like later in the game you get a double jump so so that's that's kind of like just a just a general platforming um staple that we um we wanted to try out and there's a there was other platforming staples like a uh like a dive smash you know where you kind of like smash into the ground which again we prototyped but didn't put it in um but in terms of like con more concrete examples, there's definitely some Spelunky in there, which which probably would sound surprising to people who've maybe only played some of the start of the game. But if you get to the sixth world of the game, it's all procedurally generated. And um, so, so my journey with Spelunky was that before I ever played the game, I read the book that Derek Yu wrote about Spelunky, which is super interesting. And I definitely recommend people to read that. Um, and after reading that, I was like, okay, that's, you know, he talks a lot about NetHack and the way that NetHack influenced a lot of the elements of Spelunky. And he gave this really concrete example of how his procedural generation system worked. And so that really inspired me to, you know, to just start um, doing some experiments with it because he put it in such basic terms, like in really non-technical terms of just like, here's how I started doing procedural generation. And it was just, here's how I kept it simple. I mean, that's kind of the whole thing about I think what makes Derek Yu a really great game designer is that he knows how to keep elements really simple and then combine lots of simple elements to create something complex that works well. He doesn't start with something complex and, and I think that's that's the mistake a lot of other game designers make is that they they start they try and start with like a real clever complex idea and, and it just gets buried in other complex ideas really quickly. So anyway, so... Um, there were a few other games that I was prototyping where I started using this procedural generation. So I already knew like what what can make it difficult. So um, when I decided to do it for June Shining, I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna avoid this and this pitfall so that I, I know that I can make it reliably and just get something up on its feet and then start experimenting with it. 
and so the the constraint that I that I decided on was to not have any walls. So if you if you play the sixth world of of Dune Shining, you see that it's like it kind of has this procedural random feel to it, which I just leaned into. But it doesn't have any walls, which means that you can go anywhere that that you can if you can get your ball far enough to where you want to go, then you can go there. There's there's nothing stopping you from going anywhere in particular. Um, and it works really well. And I and I I thought, well, I'll start with that much openness and then see how many constraints I need to add. And it just turned out I didn't really need to add a lot of constraint at all. And so that procedural generation system, you know, turned out to be even well much simpler than Spelunky's because in Spelunky there's still um, it needs to sort of have some valid paths from the start of the level to the end of the level. Whereas because I didn't have any walls, I didn't even need the procedural generation system to work that out. It just basically always works. So that was a big influence. Uh, and the other one that I've, you know, is I've written about a bit in the press kit and, and in some interviews is that there's this game which I saw maybe 10 years ago or more, and it was like a, a 2D platformer, so like where you control a character, but it was also a golf game, like a mini golf kind of game. But I, I don't think I ever played it, or maybe I played it a little bit. I might have just seen videos, but I have no idea what it was called or who made it. I think it was maybe just like a, a little game that, that one person made and it was on like, you know, TIG Source or, or one of those like kind of indie game forums. And I wish that I could credit that person. And, and if anyone knows what, what that game is, then please tell me. Um, but it was it was just a cool little platformer. And it, and it was just one of those things that as a game designer, it just lodged in my head forever. Um, and so that's that was definitely a, an influence of Dune Shining. That, that was probably one of the most like direct golf influences of the game. And that game had these like one-way walls, which which we use quite a lot in Dune Shining, where you can you can hit through in one direction, but you can't hit back in the other direction. So that came directly from that game. Um, so oh, and the, and there's the pinball influence as well, which which again um, I talked about this recently in terms of. Um, Yoku's Island Express, where I definitely played, like I played through Yoku's Island Express, and, and that's, for people who don't know it, that's a pinball Metroidvania. It's got really beautiful graphics. It's, it's like a lovely game, lovely little game. I love that game too. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Um, so I think that, like, I never thought about that during the development of Dune Shining, but because I've played through it, I'm sure it was there in my subconscious. So, but, but the pinball ideas were definitely there. And so, so when we started making, you know, when we started prototyping Dune Shining, you know, like way back two years ago, um, you know, first it was like going to be a, a pretty straight up kind of golf, mini golf kind of game. Um, and then we added in kind of the magic elements um, because that was actually because it was the easiest way to solve a few design problems that we were having of, of making the gameplay fun. Just adding breaks was like the, the simplest solution to, to one of the design problems we were having. So, and then that turned into the kind of the whole magic system of the game. But we also had these pinball elements in there. So we actually had like, you know, pinball flippers. And that was a, that was a key part of the game. Uh, we, we ended up taking the flippers out and changing them to, you know, there's like these little nodes that kind of like bubble out and stuff like that. Because the physics of pinball flippers is actually much more difficult than, than you would imagine to get it right because they move so fast and you know with physics when you have stuff moving fast it's it's easy for your ball to just flip right through it so um, we ended up abandoning the literal flippers but what what was the key thing was this general pinball idea of like on a 
you know, on a physical pinball table, you just have one button and that one button controls every movable part, like every, every manual movable part. And I really like that idea. Like as a game designer, often you're just looking for that, like what's, how can I give the player the most bang for their buck? You know, like create something simple that gives a huge amount of, of creativity or control or freedom or whatever. Um, so I just love that idea of having this one button. And that's that's what we did in Dune Shining and, and it worked so well. And it, and it worked so amazingly well, actually, that um, in a lot of my other prototypes that I'm developing at the moment, I've used that idea of like the shift key or, or whatever key it is can control any number of things that all have a unifying symbol on them. So in Dune Shining, that symbol is you know the double ring thing so um yeah and that was all that was all just from this kind of idea of like one button one button to rule them all like they have in pinball so yeah that's i would say that's that's kind of a decent summary of the influences that the game has so how how did i draw the comparison with um trials i yeah. feel like that the game relies at least in a certain way very much on physics because you can bounce um your ball off different surfaces and different items and then um and you always also have like this um system where where the game tells you look uh, you can do this course in two strokes right trials had like also these similar things where it relies on physics and where you had to adjust basically your driver and your motorcycle to not crash i know it's like it's not very it's not very close but i feel like it still is and you had like the same thing that you had like a time that you could beat and if you were really good at a course you mm. could do it and yeah. but um yeah but the other things that you say obviously make more sense trials was just kind of a weird comparison that came up in my mind when i played the game and was like yeah this is kind of trials but with golf mm. yeah oh that's cool that's interesting I never um that. yeah so <clears throat> and you you elaborated a lot on the concept um but how long did you actually work on the game how long did it take from the initial thought to the finished product so i think um, I think from from releasing it on early access to the full release was almost two years. So, and, and it was, we released it on early access like pretty early as a pretty rough kind of prototype. So I reckon it would have only been about three months from starting the game, getting it onto early access. And I think on early access, it was just like the first world of the game. So maybe like 12 levels. And then every month we released a new world. So yeah, I would say it was probably just a bit over two years, maybe like two years and three months or something like that. Um, which, yeah, I mean, it's it, we definitely planned it initially to be a much smaller game, um, but we also planned to, to have a hundred levels, which which the game does have, and it, that maybe still could have been a small amount of work because because on a good day. I was getting like five levels done in a day um but it's all the other stuff really it's not it's not necessarily the level design it's music took a really long time and the environment art so after i designed the levels i got an environment artist to come along and then make them all look nice basically so when i was designing levels i was kind of just doing the gameplay side of things and then the environment artist would do all the you know put in the trees and the bushes and and all the little details so that takes a really long time as well so um yeah it's it's one of those things you know as 
as a, as a first commercial product, that's, that's a, a lot of the things that, that you just learn. Um, and that's why so many, so many people love talking about not overscoping when you're planning your game, because those are the, those are the things that are easy to forget how long those little details take. Yeah, the feature creep. Yeah, well, fe I mean, feature creep as well, but that's, that's a, another thing again. Um, yeah, and that definitely takes discipline because, I mean, as a as a game designer, whether or not you have a lot of your own ideas, most game designers have played a ton of games, and and they will also be dealing with all those influences of all the other games that that are you know coming into their mind or that they're being inspired by. So um, the combination of those two things, yeah, can make feature creep very dangerous. And it's it, a lot of it is about discipline. You know, it's. Um, you can feel very clever as a game designer of like, I can do this and this, and I can combine this thing with this thing. Um, but a lot of it is just about like, well, do I, do I need to, is it, is it going to be feature creep? Am I actually making it a better game or am I just, a lot of the time it's like an ego thing of like, I want to show people that I can do this, but it doesn't necessarily make it a better game. You know, like I was saying with, with, with Derek Yu, um, he can do a lot of things in his game because because he knows how to work with like many ideas but many constraints at the same time and that's that's kind of part of that feature creep discipline i think okay yeah i can i can see that so you mm -hmm. said earlier that the world from world six on or world six um the courses are randomly generated um yes just in world so six. yeah my my big question here from a design standpoint speaking. Mm -hmm. RNG, especially I would say in a game like June Shining, because you rely on certain things, certain physics, certain things to be in place, so you can basically make the perfect shot and then use your mm -hmm. use your magic to enhance that perfect shot so your golf ball lands in hole in one. How did you make sure that the RNG gods don't frick up your shot in World 6? Because we all know, and for example, Catherine, if you ever heard of that, comes to mind. Um, the puzzles, it's a puzzle game, and I feel like Toon Shining is also par partially at least a bit of a puzzle game. Um, yeah, it is. And uh, Catherine, especially the last levels, were also randomly generated and infuriatingly frustrating. Um, right. How did you make sure this is not something that happens to the players of Tune Shining? Right. So, so I totally understand where, like, uh, what that where that question is coming from, and and it's basically a question that we had to deal with as designers once we got to uh deciding that we were going to use procedural generation um and so anyone who's played the sixth world of the game will see i mean it, it the game presents the difference to you immediately as soon as you enter that world so we do change the rules a little bit to to account for that so basically um as you're playing through the game there are some worlds uh like special puzzles and boss fights where we just kind of alter the rules or alter the gameplay a bit because having the golf style you know as few shots as possible just wouldn't make sense in those contexts so in the whole sixth world that's what we do so we there's no par so the game doesn't tell you that you're you're trying to aim for a certain amount of shots it just tells you to take as many shots as you want and instead it introduces the constraint of this cat who's introduced in the the opening scene so the cat is chasing you through the whole world basically and so um like you say that that element of like 
trying to puzzle through to find the, the optimal route through the level. The random generation doesn't have to do that. It just has to generate an, a level that's interesting enough and challenging enough. And then the cat provides that friction um, that, that you were getting before from, you know, trying to take as few shots as possible. Now you can take as many shots as you want, but the cat is making things more difficult for you. So that's that's basically how we overcame that problem. Okay, that sounds that sounds reasonable. Okay, and um, I was just interested how how would you like account for that for that issue you had from a design perspective? Um, yeah. If you if you look at Tune Shining now, since it's now fully released, full release mm. was uh, February seventeenth. Um, by the way, if you're interested in checking out Tune Shining, link is in the description of the YouTube video uh, and in the description of the podcast video, there is a link to the Steam page. So go check it out, wishlist it, and potentially buy it if you want to support the Indian, the, the deaf Al here. Um, coming back to you, do you... Uh, so if you look at Tune Shining, it's a fully released product. Um, how do you feel about it? Is it a success from a personal standpoint and from a commercial standpoint or just either one of those two? Well, either one. Um, I like that option. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm so happy with it. Um, if, uh, like I said, when we released it on Early Access, you know, almost two years ago, it was pretty rough. Like it was very rough. And, and there are still videos of it floating around on YouTube, looking, you know, in that in that rough state. Um, so seeing where it is now compared to then, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud. And the and we've had just so many people tell us how beautiful the game looks, um, which I agree, it really does. And and I agree, like not from an ego point of view either, but because one of the environment artists that I worked with, he just did an amazing job. And you know, if you're working with the right people, then you know as as the the leader of a project you you know when things are right or wrong and and you know where you want like you can, you're steering the ship you know you're steering it in a particular direction and you know hopefully you give some some good guidelines about where you want the project to go but if you're working with the right people then they will give you something better than than you had imagined right like if they're really good at, at what they do and so so when when the environment art started coming in um then it was, it really, you know, kind of the doubts just, just went from my mind, you know, like I really loved it. And I, and I, and I saw it as like a real game now, you know, not just a, a prototype or, or an experiment or, or maybe it'll never be a proper looking game or something like that. Um, I, I really, uh, you know, I, it really turned into a, this environment that I took a lot of pleasure in in being in, you know, like in playing in this environment. And that's what I wanted, that's the kind of experience I want other people to have, is like, not just playing a game, but being in this atmosphere of the game. Because it's non-violent and, and because it's like colorful and, you know, it has a, it's peaceful, it has this atmosphere of positivity to it. And that's really what, what I want other people to have. So when the environment art started coming in, I was like, yeah, that's, that's so wonderful. It, it really is capturing that environment. And then the next thing was the music, the soundtrack by Angus Barnacle, which is so amazing. Um, and for anyone who's interested in soundtracks, you, um, you know, have like have a bit of a read up on on uh, on the Steam page. We've got a link to Angus's soundtrack, and um, 
we've written a bit about it on uh, on our website as well and he's he's really like he doesn't do anything by halves you know he's really gone in depth with just creating this amazing sound world for the game and so that was the next thing for me was like when he started you know fleshing out the soundtrack and and getting it towards completion i was just like oh this is this is next level again you know in in just making this beautiful environment so um yeah so so getting back to your question from that point of view um i'm just so happy with i didn't expect it to turn into this we actually planned it this and this is this sounds stupid like to other game developers this will sound stupid but we planned it to be a three-month project and so we were going to release it in early access kind of like churn out something simple in three months that was going to be like minimalist but but good um and it just you know it's kind of the game had other ideas and, and we just had to you know you could just kind of pin that river and then you just got to follow that river where it takes you and um yeah but i'm but i'm so happy that we did and um that we we really committed to making things as as good as we could on on the budget that we had which was extremely limited <laughs> so we had no external funding for this project it was all basically out of my own pocket and with a few people doing like profit share um so yeah extremely limited resources as well and um i'm also really proud of of that um because games are so difficult to make and and people often have much bigger budgets than than probably the general public realizes even for like smallish projects um to do this out of our own pocket and get it to this level of quality um is yeah it's pretty amazing and i know a lot of indies are able to to do that but um it's always amazing <laughs> whenever any indie is able to to do that and, and achieve a good level of quality it's it's kind of a miracle um so from that point of view yeah like really proud and like really happy and and when i play the game i'm just like yes yeah, it's, it's super engaging i mean it's very difficult which is some people will love and and it that's for other people it's just not for them if if they um can't get over that difficulty hump um but yeah which I find, just let me hook in here real quick, since you yeah. since you mentioned it yourself, I wanted to talk about that um, a little bit. You, you say the game is very difficult, but it's also supposed to be calm and relaxing. How does it go together? Yeah, that's definitely something people have commented on. Um, so my kind of mantra when I was developing this game was focused, calm, precision, challenge, right? Those were like the four words that, that I would kind of say to myself, uh, like to bring myself back to the core ideas of this game that I wanted to work together. Um, so it's fine to me if people are like playing a bit of the game and having a peaceful experience, say in the, in the tutorials, a lot of people will cruise through because you know, the tutorials are, are meant to be easy and, and are just meant to ease you in. So people will have that kind of peaceful experience and then they'll get, usually I find people get to the second level of the first world and then they get a bit of a shock, but they get through it. And then they get to the fourth level and that's where a lot of people give up. I've seen a ton of people give up at that point. And so like uh, either I could work on shaving that difficulty off or rearranging the level order or whatever, but basically the game has to be difficult for it to be good and i know that you know that's a whole that's a whole big like debate really but in developing this game when it wasn't difficult yet it wasn't interesting so um you know because of the way the mechanics work and the and the you know the aiming and the golf likeness of it you know it's not the same as a dynamic avatar based platformer where you can give the player a lot more creative freedom from moment to moment the golf 
aspect of it means that you've got to stop, you've got to aim, you know, you've, you've got to kind of like plan. Um, so yeah, it, so I'm happy with the level of difficulty, but I, you know, people have, have described it as someone in a video the other day described it as evil, <laughs> as being peaceful, but evil. Um, other people have described it as a bit of a rage game or whatever. So, and I can see all that stuff, but I think when you balance that with the peacefulness, the people who will stick with the game and try and master it, eventually that will transform that kind of rage, whatever experience into, into like a precision focus, like more of a meditative focus, right? Um, that can happen, but it takes commitment. Um, so, and it's, and again, for me, the realization of, of the value of that came from Spelunky. And I'm not particularly good at Spelunky. I can't finish the game or whatever, but I, because I read about it before I played it and, and I, I loved so much of the idea of it, when it, when it came to playing it, I knew that there would be a lot of value in that for me, but I didn't realize how hard it would be. So I, I pressed on because I, because I knew that there was so much to it, you know, like I knew that it would be worth it. So I developed those skills. Um, and so, yeah, so I, so I learned, I learned a lot from that. And, and like, I, I wanted to give people the opportunity to have that experience. Um, but yeah. I also wanted it to be in a peaceful way, like where nothing is attacking you. Like what I don't like. Okay. About, so when you say, when you say peaceful is, um, it's more like non-violence. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, okay. so, so what I don't like about something like Spelunky is that the, the tension for me is the psychological tension of knowing that everything is out to get me. You know what I mean? Like I can never feel safe. Whereas in Dune Shining, you can feel safe. Like nothing is really out to get you. It's it's really just all about your own skill. And really that's kind of what the story of Dune Shining is about as well, is like the character Dune is going through all this kind of self-doubt because she wants to she wants to be perfect. You know, she wants to do this thing as perfectly as she can, and she can never do it perfectly because um, of the circumstances, you know, she's always going to break some of those eggs. She can't save all the dodos and she wants to save all of them, but she's only ever going to be able to save some of them. So it's really this, this whole kind of thing of driving towards perfection, but knowing that you can never get there. I, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. So mm. that, that is, mm. that is a, that is a good philosophical approach. And just, mm. um, from somebody who has been gaming for over three decades now, uh, I appreciate you making the game harder um, than the mm. standard game, let's say. Even if I suck mm. at it, but I like a good challenge. Um, yeah. 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 So that's interesting. Interesting that you should say that because, um, yeah, I've, I've probably been gaming for for about that long myself as well. And um, uh, something like Super Mario Kart, for example, it is another um, another inspiration for me because you know, like I played Mario Kart Eight and kind of just blazed through it and was like, there's I didn't even think that I was particularly good at the game, but there was no, in single player anyway, there was no friction for me. Whereas Super Mario Kart had this skill ceiling where it, it really took a long time to get good at that game. Um, and I, I, yeah, I feel like, like you say, and I've, and I've shown other games at expos where people have said that to me, they've, they've been like, our game, like games are so easy. It's, it's really good that this game doesn't, you know, doesn't dumb it down. It doesn't try and make everything easy for you. And I think, I think that must be a lot more of the commercially popular games or maybe AAA games because definitely a lot of indie games are, are very difficult. Um, but yeah, as you say, there must be a lot of, a lot of 
games out there, the more prominent stuff that that is just making things way too easy for players. I think <clears throat> I think it depends, uh, but there's definitely often a discussion of um, yeah difficulty and accessibility going on, uh, where mm. I say. Um, a lot of people will disagree with me on that and that's okay you can leave your comments below i will not read them because i don't care <laughs> um a lot of people always say like um accessibility and difficulty is the same i disagree accessibility has nothing to do with difficulty um right. and I feel like the the AAA industry picked like the first philosophy up and ran with it and just says yeah we need to dump everything down as much as possible so we get the broadest audience that is another factor that goes in there yeah and normally absolutely. if we also talk about difficulty um, if you look for example uh, of Call of Duty um, if you play that on the highest difficulty, there is often just the RNG, um, like how how the bullets hit you and whatnot. It's just uh, just a very high. It's that's all, and like enemies just do more damage and and stuff like that. If you yeah. if you give um what what a great example of how to do higher difficulty. I mean your your game. I don't know if I remember that correctly. I just want to go on on a tangent here real quick. I don't know. Um, I think you only had one difficulty mode in your game, right? Um, we've got normal and easy mode. Normal and easy, right? Um, what I what I always like to to parade around as good difficulty or how um like difficulty scaling is done well is the devil may cry and bayonetta series because what they do is they do not just adjust the numbers they also um tax your skills more because they bring enemies in the fold earlier on higher difficulties that you actually meet later in the game or remix the enemies and enemy encounters right okay yeah so they're actually like yeah. yeah manually going in there and and changing the way that levels unfold or whatever exactly yeah, yeah. and and it, that yeah. they're doing that as developers they're doing more work yeah to actually and, tailor that experience yeah and and that is something where i say um this actually is something where i say difficulty or, or difficulty adjustment done right mm, it, it's yeah. not just some number slider adjustments and then they actually go in and do some work yeah and yeah, yeah. And that's as it should be basically yeah. but um you can understand with a triple a game though like if it was about changing content imagine how much content that they would potentially have to change you know it, it could it could turn into a very time consuming very expensive thing to make manual changes for every different difficulty setting it, it, like, like i say it depends i think a little bit also on the genre and how you do it because mm -hmm. i imagine that like swapping out enemy types and encounter setups because the encounters in something like devil may cry i more or less predetermined is i think still relatively easy to do of course it's more work but it's still like work that can be done mm, i don't know it's hard to say um game development is is so difficult and there's often it's often such a so many things depending on so many other things that if you change one thing then then potentially it might mean you have to change a hundred other things as well to cater for it 
It doesn't always, but um, yeah. So I would, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hazard a guess at at, a, at those big and complicated games how easy or difficult it might be to make those changes. But I, I agree with you in principle that um, it shouldn't just be about changing some sliders. Ideally, it should be about tailoring that experience for the player as much as possible. Yeah. But I mean, um, the best. I saw this video. Uh, sorry, I'll just finish this thought. I, th I saw this video on Pizza Tower the other day, and and they had a, a great description of like how Pizza Tower just allows you to play the game in a way that you're tailoring the difficulty to your own skill level. So there aren't like difficulty modes, you know, there's not like an easy mode or a hard mode or whatever, but the game is just kind of open enough and free enough for you to play it the way that you want to play it and, and figure out how hard or difficult you want to make your own experience. And that's, I think that's a real, that's a sign of a really well designed game where you can just, the way that you play the game will kind of determine how easy or difficult it is. Yeah, I can see that. That, that brings, yeah, yeah, I can agree to that. I mean, I haven't played Pizza Tower, I probably should at one point, um, but yeah, that's... Mm. I mean, it would, that, it doesn't work for all kinds of games, like that oh, of sort of course. philosophy, but... Um, yeah. It's it's always, I mean, more or less the takeaway would be different genres have obviously different needs. Um, mm, yeah. The takeaway would probably be try to make the best out of the genre you are developing in, if that makes sense. I feel like yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, in mm. so let's since since you mentioned it and since I want to segue a little bit into the gaming industry and we are basically already there. Mm -hmm. We we already touched a little bit upon the AAA industry in in the last talk about difficulty and whatnot. And um, mm. so if you look at the gaming landscape today as a very experienced gamer, especially the AAA gaming industry. What is your least favorite trend currently going on? Well, uh, my answer to that would be very broad because I don't actually play AAA games really, apart from Nintendo ones, which I don't know if, I don't know if people, I guess people qualify Nintendo first party games as AAA games. Um, but I mean, basically my, my broad answer to that would be that I tend to not play any games that are violent and it's not because i have a problem with violence it's that i've been playing games for so long i just grew out of it um so it doesn't interest me and as a game designer which is you know like as a when when a game designer when game design becomes your profession um you can't play a game even for fun without having that part of your brain engaged in some kind of way like kind of the analytical design part of your brain um so to me, if if 99% of a of a given game is about shooting people, um, then I don't care about it. Uh, it's not interesting to me as a designer, um, and it's definitely not interesting to me as a player. Um, so, and the and the problem is even even if there are aspects of the the AAA industry that want to be making games that don't do that, it will be very difficult for them to do that from a, a financial point of view because um you know it's 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 difficult to violence is, is still the the most popular thing you know games that have violence are much more popular than puzzle games or whatever um so uh that is definitely the the, the biggest like broadest thing that i can say about about that is that um you know like a 
it's a, to me it's amazing seeing like uh, the visuals and the music and whatever in those those really high high budget games um, but but sometimes I wish that there would be some high budget game that I actually wanted to play um, I mean a while back I played uh, what was it? Uh, Dragon Age Inquisition. Purely because I, I was at, I think I was at PAX in Seattle and I saw it there and I was like, man, what's that game? Um, because the environments just looked so incredible. And so I played a lot of it, but I didn't, I wasn't interested in like the combat and, and you know, most of that game is combat, but I just really wanted to explore that environment. So I, I do kind of wish that, that those that level of environments existed with just something else that you could do in them apart from having to kill everything um, so you know so Nintendo often does like more interesting things because even even if it's still about like you know there's there's this enemy that you've got to deal with often it's it's about you know puzzle platforming or exploration or whatever and inventive mechanics you know like it, I would say there's probably no well I, don't know. I mean, definitely all the all the Mario games always have inventive mechanics, and they never they never stop trying to be inventive with with those games. So um, even if combat and boss fights and whatever are an essential part of that, they're still to me much more worth playing because there's still so much to discover, like as a game designer um, and and just as a as a player having fun with with those kind of things. So um, yeah, that's that's interesting to me, but. But, but generally speaking, I mean, being an indie developer in the indie scene, I get a lot more inspiration from other indies because uh, the way I see it is like AAA are like these big um, ocean liners, you know, like huge, huge ships. And if they want to try something new, then they've got to, and they want to turn the ship, then the ship takes a really long time to turn, you know, and it's this, it's this huge thing. Whereas indies are more like speedboats, you know, we can like, we can cruise around and maybe we can't carry as many people, but if we want to turn a corner, then we can just zip around and turn a corner. We're much more agile because um, we don't have millions of dollars and thousands of people at stake in, in doing an experiment, you know, so we can, a lot of us can just experiment with whatever we want and we just have like way more freedom. So um, yeah, that's that's where most of my kind of interest and, and inspiration comes from. Okay, and is there like a trend that you really like? Um, well, I think I've been talking about Spelunky a lot, but, but I think that the general, um, or to make it broader, I think the general kind of roguelike uh, trend that's been happening with taking roguelike elements and making them more accessible um, because I've read a lot about the history of roguelikes and and rogue and net hack and all of that kind of stuff and um, I've, I've tried to play net hack and um, I've played this one called brogue which is sort of like a, a traditional roguelike but presented in a way that you can sort of just play it with a mouse. You don't need to know all these crazy in-depth keyboard commands and whatever. Um, but but even so, it's it's you still have to, there's still that encyclopedic kind of knowledge of all the things that you have, to, all the systems you need to understand. So I think like um, all, all the roguelikes and the popularities of roguelikes that, um, that make all that stuff more accessible and that you can just kind of experiment and, and just, just like try things and die a lot but still have fun doing it i think that's really wonderful and and i think it's really interesting people designing these uh, procedural generation systems 
that are maybe 50% them being creative and 50% uh, let's just design a good system and see what the system can do because that's a really interesting intersection of, of like as a designer you don't have to control everything you know you you design a good system so that you can trust it and, and let it go and see what it can do on its own um, and what I hope to see from that as well is like a lot more encouraging of player creativity and the good I think the good ones already do encourage that because they just naturally have these systems where there's a million ways to solve any given problem but I think um, generally the problems are either too too broad and not interesting like for example just get to the end of each level or they're like too specific where it's like okay do this thing and this thing and this thing in this specific order but the journey along the way to get there is is you can kind of as long as you can find this thing and this thing and this thing then then you can get there any way you want but that's you know that specific sequence of things that you're trying to achieve doesn't necessarily need to be locked in so i don't know if i've seen any roguelikes that that do that yet where you know maybe there'd be a an adventure story which is like you know find the magic orb and and find the the bird that's that has magic feathers and use the feathers with the orb and whatever but where each step of that kind of adventure is also procedurally generated um so and maybe the story as well that goes along with that is sort of procedurally generated but not in terms of like a lot of text just like in terms of you randomly meet some npc who gives you some objective to find something in so that's what i would like to see is more of that kind of uh, giving players a lot of freedom and um, uh, objectives and story being more intertwined with that roguelike system. Okay, that sounds interesting. Ooh. Okay, let's let's do one last question and then we wrap it up. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I said something about oddball questions, right? Yeah. He here is one. Imagine the following scenario: you're at the United Nations. And you can talk on behalf of all video games. What would you tell the United Nations about video games? Well, I think I would I would draw some specific examples because that's always useful uh, of saying that I think these games and and what we could kind of extrapolate from these kind of games into the future of game development can be really positive and and I wouldn't say have can have a positive effect on people because because they can but you know, as soon as you say that people, a lot of people are going to go, okay, we'll prove it. But so I would say, again, from a personal point of view, I would point to something like The Witness and say, this is a, this is a game that like can get people thinking deeply and exploring. And it doesn't, it doesn't make any violent demands on you in terms of literal violence or even like emotional or psychological violence. Um, it really wants you to be in a peaceful state but challenged at the same time so i would say and and i think there's not many like really great examples of something like that and it, and it comes back to that question that you asked me of like how how do i reconcile the fact that tune shining wants to be peaceful but also wants to be challenging um i think that is something that when games do it well then we can do it better than than anything else because uh I would say if you look at say Studio Ghibli films, they a lot of the times the characters are developed in those films in a way that is more challenging than we're used to, especially from 
from animated films because they have more dimension and even the even the characters that are that are good are more flawed or more ambiguous um, and so we're more challenged to understand how they work and not just and not just wait for the inevitable like it's it's all going to wrap up neatly um and so and so ga a, a game that is both that both wants you to be in a peaceful place or or wants to help you find a peaceful place or share that or or peaceful or or serene or whatever it is or a loving place or whatever po that positive thing is for you as a player or as a designer um can can do that in a you know it's not just a two-hour movie or whatever it's it's you can really explore that deeply and so something like the witness really allows you to explore that deeply and from a lot of different angles and so that's like if i could broadcast something about games to me it would be that let's have a discussion in the world about how we can find those kind of positive experiences and get people who are playing games and who are making games to question whether they are having those positive experiences and if they're not then why not you know uh get, get game designers to to question like do they want their players to be having a positive experience um and if they don't then then why not and it doesn't have to be like all sunshine and rainbows when i say positive experience you know it, there could be violence or there could be horror or whatever but still with the intention of a player finding a positive experience from that but that's what i that's what i would say you know is like that potential is really there but but oddly enough it's it's really untapped to to give players something truly positive and and that challenge has to be there for it to be positive because that's that's the human condition of storytelling is is that there needs to be some kind of friction there you can't just present someone with like a simple thing that's that's sunshine and rainbows and go here yeah, that's a positive experience because it's it's never that easy you know there's got to be a journey yeah, it's gotta be a journey that is that is some wise words there's always gonna be a journey somewhere for yep. someone mm -hmm. all right um i would say we ended here um thank you for coming out i hope you come yeah. back at one point because i think there's yeah. still a lot of ground to cover especially with what comes in the future because i think June Shining might not be the last thing we've ever heard of you. <laughs> I have a definitely, feeling. Um, definitely not. Yeah. And you can find me as the Orcosaurus on Twitch and on all social media platforms and on YouTube. Um, you can also, if you want to support, look at my Patreon. Link is in the description. Um, every link to June Shining and to Al you can also find in the description. And with that being said, that was your guest. I'll thank you for coming. Thank you. Great talking to you. And everyone, have a good, have a great time. Bye bye. See ya.